When I was a campus minister, it was a lot of fun to be able to do a series on relationships about every three to four years. And uh, people were asking good questions, uh, worthy questions, and really wrestling with what it meant to to be a Christian, what would it mean to be a follower of Jesus and to think about relationships. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about these things. But what almost no one gave any time to was thinking about the issue of singleness. And I thought that was really interesting. There's there's a lot of thinking in the church that sometimes views singleness as kind of being a second-class way of existing. And I noticed a lot of students bought into that. And even um, in the church, as we get older and grow, that can still uh, work its way into a lot of our thinking. And so I want us to just entertain this question this morning. How should we think about singleness? What would it mean to follow Jesus as a single person? Now, I just want to recognize that some of us are single by choice. Some of us are too young to be married. It hasn't even entered our minds. Some of us are intentional in being single. We don't want to be married. We're giving our life to a particular cause or particular interest. And others of us don't want to be married because we have suffered the pain of walking through a divorce or or heartbreak, and we just don't want to go there anymore. Some of us, though, are, are single by circumstance. Some of us want to be married, but that's just not happening right now. Some of us have gone through a divorce and have walked through the pain of that. We didn't see our life playing out this way, but we find ourselves single now. And some of us are single because our spouse has passed away. And I want us to think about this together as a congregation because we need to develop a good, what I'm going to call a theology of singleness. Because in one sense, singleness is our default status, our default mode of existence. And if you think about it, we come into this world single, We're not married. We may be pledged already. I know sometimes parents get together and they talk about their kids getting married one day. But we come into this world married. But some of us who are married may find ourselves single. Despite our best efforts and and intentions, marriages fall apart in this world. And some of us who are married will walk through the death of a spouse and find ourselves once again being single. I want us to to think through this today as we look at some scriptures because as a community of faith, we need to think properly about this issue of singleness so that we don't develop a bad theology of singleness and we don't distort our counsel that we give to other people. And so I'm going to call our study today the gift and calling of singleness. So whether you find yourself here today married, hoping to be married, never wanting to be married, or find yourself single... I just want us to think through this together, and we're going to look at some key texts from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So let me invite you to lean in this day as we look at these words from the Apostle Paul, who was a lifetime, or lifelong single, I might put it that way, and uh, and see what he had to say. This is the foremost uh, ambassador of Jesus to the Roman Empire, and he wrote half of our New Testament. And so we want to listen to what he has to say about this issue. So as we get ready to, to dig into this text, let's pause and pray to the Lord and ask him to teach us and to meet us wherever we are this day and to help us to learn from him. Lord, a lot of times we don't give much time or effort to think about singleness. We don't know what it means to follow Jesus as a single. We don't 
we don't really understand how best to give advice in a lot of situations where people find themselves single. Would you meet us this day? Those of us who are single, those of us who are married, help us to think together as a community of faith what it would mean to follow Jesus as a single person. And I pray that those of us who are single here today would, to be, would be greatly encouraged in the gospel of Christ. And for those of us who are married, that we would be encouraged as well, being sharpened in the gospel of Jesus and growing together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. So meet us this day, we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to just take a collection of verses that are found in this. He, he goes back and forth between talking about singleness and talking about marriage, and so we're just going to kind of pluck up the verses in which he talks about singleness. And so he begins chapter 7 by saying this, Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So Paul has helped plant this church, this community of followers of Jesus in Corinth. And he's away from them now, and they've sent him a letter with a messenger to deliver that letter. And one of the things they want his insight on is this issue of um, what it means to, to be married, to, to follow Jesus, to be single, uh, especially the place that sexuality plays in that. So what they want him to comment on is this. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What we need to know about what was going on at this time is they were really being kind of uh, boxed by two different places or two different philosophies. One of them was asceticism. That is the philosophy that the body or anything to do with pleasure is bad and therefore self-denial and abstinence are the only real options. It went so far as to say that even married people should abstain from pleasure and the act of marriage because it just leads to bad things. That was one side they were getting boxed at. The other side that was kind of beating them up was what would become known as Gnosticism. And it was this idea that the soul is the real you, and that's what's most important. And so therefore, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And actually, in this community of faith, there were people who embodied this by saying, what counts is my soul and my personal walk with Jesus, and it doesn't matter what I do with my body. And there were actually people who called themselves Christians vocal, uh, visiting the local a temple, and the prostitutes who worked at the temple. So you can see when they wrote to him and said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, that they needed to see what Paul had to say about this. And so Paul, in verse 2, said, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. So he's, he's saying that it is not good for a man to have sexual relationships with a woman, and they say, let me back that up. I think that came out wrongly. He's, he's addressing what they were saying, and he's saying, look, it is good for this to happen in the right place. Because there's a temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each wife should have her own husband. And so, without trying to unpack too much of what he's saying here, let's just make this point. Like Jesus... The Apostle Paul affirmed the goodness of marriage between a man and a woman as the only appropriate place for sexual relations. So they're saying it was good for a man not to have these kind of relationships with a woman. And Paul is saying it's actually good in its right context. Down in verse 7, he says this. It's really what, it would have been shocking in this state for, for the Apostle to put it this way. He says, I wish that you all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. 
to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul is saying, you know what? I, I wish everyone could be like I am. I am a single person. I'm a follower of Jesus. And this is a gift and a calling that I have. But he recognizes that not everybody has that gift. Not everyone has that calling. Some are married and have that gift. Some are single and have that gift. But he says to the unmarried and the widows, I would say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. We need to hear the Apostle Paul saying here, singleness is a good thing in and of itself. And we need to hear that in our own day. Because in the church especially, sometimes we denigrate singleness. It's, like I said, a kind of a second-class existence. And Paul says, no, it is a good thing for a person to remain single. I like what Tim Keller said. He helps explain exactly the context of what this letter was encountering. He said, nearly all ancient religions and cultures made an absolute value of family and of, bearing, and of the bearing of children. Excuse me. There was no honor without family honor, and there was no real lasting significance or legacy without leaving heirs. But Christianity's founder, Jesus Christ, and leading theologian, St. Paul, were both single their entire lives. Single adults cannot be seen as somehow less fully formed or realized human beings than married persons because Jesus Christ, a single man, was the perfect man. And I find this to be so significant. In a day and age that said family is everything, Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul lived full and realized human lives. So the Apostle Paul's point in bringing this up is that both married life and the single life are good things in and of themselves, and both should be viewed as gifts of God. And in some cases, the single life is to be preferred and chosen. He goes on in verse 9 and says this, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul is recognizing the temptation that goes around this area of life called sexuality. And so he, he desires that singles stay single and enjoy their singleness. But he says, look, if they cannot exercise self-control, which is interesting because the Apostle Paul says self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. But he's, I think, in a sense saying if, if they're overwhelmed with the desi desire for this, then yeah, it would be better to marry than to burn with passion. I like what Sam Alberry said in his book, Seven Myths About Singleness. He's an Anglican minister, and he put it this way. The ancient world tended to separate marriage from romantic or sexual fulfillment. Marriage was about matching up with someone of appropriate economic and social status and securing heirs. It was about business and posterity. For sexual or romantic fulfillment, you turn not to your wife, but to a concubine and a lover, or often to both. Paul's point is that you should turn to marriage to fulfill your passions, not because he thinks that that's all marriage is good for, but because marriage is the only godly place for such passions to be fulfilled. So Paul is saying it's good for a person to be single, but if they can't live with that singleness, if they have an overwhelming desire to engage in this kind of intimacy, he says there is a place for that to take place, and that is within the covenant of marriage. Let's drop down to verse 25. They may have been thinking in their life, what about these people who are betrothed, people who are engaged? And in that day and age, a person who was engaged, what we would call engaged, they described as betrothed. And this was actually much more serious. Uh, these couples were essentially considered married, but they hadn't come together yet 
to consummate their marriage. Sometimes this period of time would last for a year. Joseph and Mary were betrothed to one another. And when Joseph thought he wanted to to get out of that, he had to file for a certificate of divorce. So betrothed people were very much uh, more than just simply engaged. They were already, in a sense, kind of legally bound to one another. And so Paul brings up this issue. He says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who is who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. In other words, he says, okay, I want to talk about this issue, but I'm not saying this as a command from Jesus. I don't have any uh, direct um, instructions from him on this issue. But I am speaking as someone that you can trust, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And then he says this, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, I've highlighted these words in view of the present distress. I wish that we knew exactly what was going on with that. But most scholars believe this was an increasing persecution of followers of Jesus. The Jewish religion was recognized under Roman law as being a legitimate expression for a person, but now Christianity was coming along, and they were saying, we're not going to sacrifice to the Roman imperial cult, and they found themselves in much deeper water with the authorities at that time. So many people think that that present distress that he's talking about here is increased persecution. Something is going on that would make it more difficult to make a transition in life. In fact, he's going to go on and talk about the appointed time has grown very short and the present form of this world is passing away. So some people think Paul is thinking about the end of the world coming, and that might be the case, but I think he's just thinking about the monumental shifts that are taking place with the preaching of the gospel and the persecution that is coming with that. So he says in verse 28, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So he's saying, look, if if you do marry, that's not a problem. You are not sinning in doing that. If if you go ahead and bring together this betrothal, that is fine. You're not sinning. But he's saying, part of my counsel to you is that if you marry, you're going to have worldly troubles, and I want to spare you of that. And as I was reflecting on it this last week, I was thinking about how so many of our brothers and sisters around the world face uh, very intense persecution for following Jesus. And I uh, used to get this um, Voice of the Martyrs magazine. It would talk about uh, persecution going on around the world. And I would oftentimes think, what would I do if I was in that position? And I am a committed follower of Jesus Christ. I have been for a long time. He has my allegiance. He has my heart. And so I think that if push came to shove, I would be faithful. And I hope that I would be faithful to death. But let me tell you what would make it really hard. If someone were to be torturing my wife or my children and saying, well, stop if you recant. Oh, that's another ball game in some sense. But even apart from persecution, to be married in this world is to have various kinds of troubles. And Paul's not denigrating marriage, but he's being realistic. Oftentimes, there is stress within marriage. Husbands and wives get at odds with one another. They they don't know how to love one another anymore. But even if it's not difficult in that way, there's just a lot that goes on in being married and raising a family. 
You got to take your wife on dates to keep that relationship nurtured. You have to change diapers. You have to help kids with, the, uh, with their homework. There's just a lot of, of extra trouble that goes into to being married. And again, Paul is not denigrating marriage. He says you're free to do that, and God gives that gift to some people. But he says, look, in this world, people who are married will have trouble. And he's probably especially thinking about times of persecution. And so down in verse 32, he says this. I want you to be free from anxieties. Let's be very careful as we work our way through this. It's it's very easy to misunderstand what Paul is saying here. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. We're just talking about that. A man who is married has obligations to care for and to love and to serve his wife. Just like Christ loved and served his bride, the church. And so he says, look, a married man has his attention divided. He goes on and says, And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And he says this in verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So to the singles in Corinth, he's saying, look, it is good to be single. In fact, if you get married, there's going to be added um, complications to your life. And he's, he's really writing to secure their undivided attention and devotion to the Lord. So someone reads that and says, wait a minute, are you saying that I'm not pleasing the Lord if I'm seeking to be a good wife? And Paul would say, no, that is pleasing to the Lord. But he's thinking particularly in terms of the mission of the gospel in this world and a person's ability to give their attention and time to that. And so a married person has their time and attention divided. There's certain obligations that come with being married and having a family that a person who is not married and doesn't have a family doesn't have. Sam Alberry, again, I think is very helpful. He says, if we are not careful, it is easy to misunderstand this passage Paul is not saying that singleness is spiritual and marriage is unspiritual, nor is he saying that singleness is easy but marriage is hard. No, the contrast is between complexity and simplicity. Married life is more complicated. Singleness is more straightforward. I know my single friends would say, my life is very complicated. And yes, indeed, it is in many ways. But adding a relationship is another layer of complication. And so... Let's be clear what Paul is saying what he's not. Paul is not denigrating family life, nor is he saying that serving one's family is not serving the Lord. Indeed, it is a form of service, but it is a long-term and sometimes demanding work that makes claims on one's time, attention, and energy in order to please one's family. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. I had a friend who was a campus minister at Auburn University, you know, War Eagle country, right? And he was, uh, he, was, he was a great servant of the Lord, um, a great communi- communicator of the gospel. And he was telling me this time that he was up on campus and he was leading a Bible study late at night and it got over like at 11 o'clock. And so he left and went back home to, to be with his family. But on his way back on campus, he just bumped into another student who was in his ministry who was like, well, what are you doing up on campus so late? He says, well, we were just doing this Bible study over in the dorm and it's a good Bible study and we're having uh, some good fellowship and, and it's over and I'm, I'm heading back home. And he said this student just paused and asked him, don't you have a family? (laughs) 
for this young college student to, to see this person who was a campus minister out so late at night and doing good things, but not being with his family just caused the student to raise a question. And so he told me that in, in the context of realizing the ministry was becoming an idol for him, that he was neglecting his family for the sake of doing the ministry. And so I, I, through the years, I've known wives who have had husbands who are pastors who have grown very bitter because their husband really is married to the church. I've seen young people who've grown up very embittered because their father or their mother who is engaged in ministry were never there for them. So being married has obligations for family life. And so Paul is saying, look, family life and being married is good, but it's also good to be single. And if you're single, you can give yourself in an undevoted fashion to the work of the gospel. So he goes on and says this, verse 38. It's almost... Like, did Paul really say that kind of a statement? Verse 38, So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. I wonder if I read that to you, apart from knowing this was in Scripture. Would you have agreed with that? Paul is saying, look, if you get married, you do well. You can't, you can't go wrong in getting married. But if, if you choose to stay single... You can do even better. You can't go wrong with that. This is the Apostle Paul. What he's doing is he's elevating singleness and saying it is a good thing. It is not a second-class existence. And it should be prized and cherished. There's this place where Jesus was talking about relationships and he was asked the question about marriage and he talked about how marriage is, is meant to be uh, something a person is committed to and these religious leaders were just wanting to have throwaway marriages and he talks about the issue of divorce and his disciples come to him and say, well, if this is the case, Jesus, it's better not to be married. And then Jesus goes on and he speaks of those who choose singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Jesus believed that choosing to be single for the sake of ministry and furtherance of the gospel of Jesus is a good thing. It is not a bad thing. But he also believed that marriage is a good thing as well. So if I can kind of bottom line this for us, I think it would be something like this. Like marriage, singleness should be viewed both as a gift of God and as a calling from God. The remaining time that we have together, I want to spend just a a couple points of application to to help us bring this home. Let's view singleness as an investment for the glory of Christ. Let's, as a community of faith, view singleness as an opportunity for people to be devoted to Christ and to invest their lives for the glory of Christ. And I say this because just like marriage can be approached selfishly, and oftentimes is, so singleness can sometimes be approached selfishly as well. Sam Alberry again, I, sh- I guess I should have said a while ago, this man is himself single, and uh, he's written this book on seven myths about singleness, which I would commend to you. Uh, he speaks with street cred, I should say. <laughs> he says, Paul is assuming we singles will be anxious about the things of the Lord. This is a battle for many of us. It is easy to channel our flexibility and energies into merely pleasing ourselves rather than God. A significant temptation for many singles, especially if we live on our own, is to become self-centered. I can easily become anxious about the things of me. 
We need to remind ourselves daily that our singleness is not for us, but for the Lord. It is not for our concerns, but for His. And so if you're a single, you need to know that you are not your own. But in Christ, you've been bought with a price. Just like if you were married, you need to know that you are not your own, but you belong to Christ because you have been bought with a price. For those of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, whether we are singles or married, we belong to the Lord first and foremost. And so, Alberry here is saying that singleness should be directed in devotion to the Lord. Now, imagine someone saying something like this, but I don't want this gift from the Lord. I want the other gift from the Lord, right? I say that with a bit of humor, but I've thought about this, especially this week as I've, I've wrestled with how to present this teaching of the Scripture, and, and I thought of myself in the future, what would happen if my wife passed away before I did? I would hate that. I would not want that gift. But I need to have a shift in my thinking if God were to call me down that journey, to see that as a place where I'm being called to. And I may not want to go there, but wherever I find myself, it is a calling from the Lord. So right now I am a married man, and part of my calling from the Lord is to live faithfully as a married person. But I may be single, and I may not want that gift. But even then, I'm still called to follow the Lord. Remember, for Paul, it is not wrong to desire to be married. But what can be dangerous is to demand it, to make your happiness or God's goodness dependent upon it. And I've had so many conversations over the years, especially in working with university students who, who view their future as a married person. And there's this demand within them that if God is really good, he will give me what I want. And so I try to help them step back a little bit and say, I want you to hold this with an open hand. It may be God's will for you to be married. But it may not. It may be God's will for you to be married for a time and then to be single. That's not within your control. But what is in your control is to see your life, however you find yourself, as a gift and a calling from the Lord to be given back to him. There's a, a lady that I met really about almost two decades ago by the name of Paige Benton. She has this article called Singled Out by God for Good. You can still find it on the internet. And she said this, I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is good to me. I may never have another date and die an old maid at 93 because God is so good to me. God's goodness is not dependent on our circumstances. It can never be dependent upon our circumstances. Whether it's married status, whether it's the amount of money that we have, whether we have popularity or not, those things are not dependent upon the goodness of God. We should not interpret the goodness of God in light of our circumstances. I should put it that way. And so some of us may face the next chapter of our lives as a single person. For those who are single, the next chapter of your life might still be to be single. But some of us may find ourselves in the next chapter of our life because of circumstances single. And so let me encourage you, if you find yourself in a place that you didn't expect yourself to be, or might find yourself in a place that you didn't expect yourself to be, to just remember that God loves you, and he's not done with you yet. Your usefulness to him is not dependent on your marriage status. He wants to still bless you. He still wants to amplify his grace in and through your life. And so if that next chapter of your life finds you as a single person, resolve even now 
to receive that as a calling from the Lord and determine to follow him no matter what. So here's another point of application. Let's learn to view church as a family that Christ gives to us. And I want to say this particularly in our context. In Bryan College Station, we have a lot of good churches, and there's, there's lots of options there. But one of the temptations that we find ourselves facing is, is just to see church as a place that we go to. We hope to hear inspirational music, and hopefully the pastor hits a good sermon out of the park. And uh, we, we think of church as a place to go and not a place to be connected to. But if we listen to what the scriptures themselves teach, the local church is meant to be a community of faith that serves as a family for us. There's this one place in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus was teaching the crowds and his, his family comes to him and wants to speak with him. So someone comes up to Jesus and says, hey, your mother and brothers are here. They want to speak with you. And Mark tells us, Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at about at those who sat around him. He said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus redefines family for us. Yes, there is family that runs along biological lines. And for those of us who have a family, that is a gift to have and to enjoy. But Jesus is thinking of another family, a spiritual family. Those who who've received the call of God, who want to answer that call with serving God with their lives. And Jesus says, if, if you are that, you are his family. And we're meant to see the community of faith as our family, as an extended family that is there for me and that I'm there for it as well. So here's the crucial point. When Jesus thinks about family, he has a different concept in mind. Sure, there is the nuclear family that runs along biological lines, but Jesus says there is another kind of family, one that is spiritual. In other words, even if we have a biological family, that is not the only family that followers of Jesus have. And that's important for us to remember. Here's another implication of that. This means that we should learn to see each other first and foremost as brothers and sisters in Christ, our spiritual family that God has gifted to us. I think that we need to grow in this. I think we need to grow in not thinking of each other primarily by marital status, but by the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that he has called us to journey together. And so I think there are implications for this. I think that means that those of us who are married, we need to look around and see people who are single and include them in our family, different activities, maybe take someone out for lunch and share a coffee with them or something like that and ask how their life is going. I think that also means for, for those who are single in a church community to see this place as an opportunity or any church as an opportunity to get connected, especially to a families, and to see them as your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And let me just say this. A word for those of us who are married. Let's stop asking single people when they are going to get married. This is not a helpful question to ask. I know for some singles, they want to be married. And for some singles, they don't want to be married. And I think that we need to stop asking this question because it assumes that the normal status for someone is that they are married. And a person may go there in life, but they may not. This question, I know from talking to singles who hear this question all the time, that this is 
a very frustrating question to be asked. Maybe it would be better to get together with someone who is single, or for a couple singles to get together and just say, hey, how is, how is your walk with Christ? How does being single help you in your walk with Christ? What challenges do you face? How can I encourage you with where you are right now? How do you need help seeing your life as a place that you can invest for the kingdom of Christ? We need to have these kind of questions in our mind and not, why aren't you married yet? That's not a helpful question. Let's get this point down as well. Both Jesus and Paul lived fulfilling lives as single people. Because they saw their singleness as both a gift and a calling from God, they lived fully human lives and were fruitful for the Lord. I'm using that word fruitful in a very intentional way. Stay with me for the next few moments. We're told in the book of Isaiah, as it predicted the coming of Christ, it said, it says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Here, God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, speaks of that coming Christ, the Messiah. And it says, he will see his offspring. But Jesus was never married. How does he see his offspring? His offspring are not biological descendants of Jesus, but spiritual descendants of Jesus. In fact, the book of Hebrews puts it like this. Behold, I and the children God has given me. These words are from the mouth of Jesus. Behold, I and the children God has given to me. Who are the children of Christ? He had no biological children in this world. But he has a worldwide, multinational family of children those who responded to the call of the gospel. The Apostle Paul talked in these sort of ways as well. To the Corinthians, he wrote these words, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In writing to his friend Titus, he says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith. In writing to his friend Onesimus, to receive back his servant, he described Onesimus as one whose father I became in my imprisonment. And writing to Timothy, he calls Timothy my true child in the faith. What Jesus saw as a spiritual family, the Apostle Paul also saw as a spiritual family. And he says, look, these people who've come to know Christ through my ministry, these are my spiritual children. So even though Paul had no biological children, he had no nuclear family, he had children for the Lord. And to understand this, let's just take one step further back and put it in the context of Scripture. Remember, going back to the book of Genesis, we looked at this already in our series, we had the creation mandate. When God created the first image bearers and brought them together, he gave them the command, or he, he blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. God brought together a man and a woman, endowed them with his image, and gave them a commission to create other image bearers of God that would fill this earth. God wanted his rule and reign to be magnified and amplified through the creation of more human beings. That's why they're called to be fruitful. But we know as the story unfolds for us, we have filled the earth with violence, suffering, tears, and death. This is not what God had wanted humanity to fill the world with. And so Christ came, and he died on that cross, and he rose again from the dead. And now he gives a new great commission, a new mandate. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
So this world is filled with image bearers of God. Mainly rebellious image bearers. I mean, we're all by nature fallen. But Christ now says to us, go and make disciples. That is to encounter image bearers of God all around you. Tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. Make disciples. I want to give Sam Albury one more word with us. He helps us understand exactly what the point I'm trying to get at here. Genesis calls humanity to make more people. But Jesus calls his new humanity to make disciples. For the earth to be filled with the image of God, people need to come into relationship with him and growing likeness of the one who is the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. We cannot fulfill the original intention of the creation mandate without reaching people with the gospel and building them up in Christ. I think this is why Paul, in writing to the Galatians, called them my little children. And he describes them as those for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He says, in one sense, I've given birth to you in Christ. And now I'm in anguish, the anguish of childbirth once again, because I want to see Christ formed in you. I'll bury again. This is where the mandate of Genesis 1 reaches its final fulfillment. And singles have a vital and distinct part to play in this as they give themselves to the family of God's people and through the work of the gospel find themselves spiritually reproducing those who, like Paul with Titus, they can describe as a true son or daughter in the faith. So you may not have the opportunity to have physical offspring because of your marital status. You may not have the opportunity to do that because even though you're married, there's a problem with biology. And it's just not happening. But that doesn't mean that we cannot bear children for the Lord. No wonder God, through the prophet Isaiah, had this declaration. Seeing, O barren one, who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. What is God saying here? He's saying, look, there is a time and a place for those who find themselves childless, to find themselves fruitful as they bear children for the Lord. Not biological children, but spiritual children as they engage in the work of the gospel and are parts of a community of faith where the gospel is proclaimed and Christ is formed in people like us. So, Mercy Hill Church, may you become a people that view both marriage and singleness as good gifts and good callings from a good God. And may the Lord form you into a community of brothers and sisters on mission with Christ for the good of this world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity where we've been able to open this ancient document from the New Testament to hear the right-hand man of Jesus, talk about this issue of singleness. Lord, it is good for a person to be married, and it is also good for a person to be single. We receive both these elements as good gifts from you. And so I pray for all of us as we wrestle through the implications of that, whether we're married and find ourselves in in a marriage that is very stressful, or whether we find ourselves single for any number of reasons. Would you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight and enable us to see both marriage and singleness as good gifts, good in and of themselves, and as callings from you 
to occupy, to flesh out, to live and to dwell before you in the status that you've given to us. So may you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.